This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them, and my aim, as always, is education. Hello, class. How's everybody today? Is everybody ready to finish up I really do mean finish. We're going to get this done in this episode. It's not going to be in other Israel keys. Before I get into today's episode, last week I mentioned that I was going to be switching over podcast hosts, and I canceled that plan. There's two reasons behind that. I would lose my current download statistics. You know how I have every once in a while I'll show on social media it counts how many downloads I have. I'm almost at 30,000 right now. And if I switched hosts, I would have to start from scratch, meaning it would go down to zero again. And I just wasn't willing to give that up. The second thing is my current host shows where my downloads are located and not only the state, but the city. And I have a lot of fun going through them and recognizing cities that they're repeat listeners. And I'll be like, oh, there's good old Albuquerque, New Mexico again. And whoever is in Albuquerque, thank you very much because you're like my, I think, number one most popular listener. Or it could be a VPN. It could be somebody just pretending to be in Albuquerque. I don't know. But the other place I was going to go, it would just give you locations by state and not by city. Anyway, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. I just wanted to keep everybody up to date on that. So we, before we get into the rest of the episode today, I have a quick correction to make from last week. For some reason, I missed the fact that Gail and Tim actually had four kids. They had a 12-year-old daughter. I don't know her name, but it appears that she was sleeping in the bottom bunk, and Roxanne and Christina were in the top bunk the night that Roxanne was taken. And she's not really mentioned a whole lot anywhere that I've seen, but I just wanted to clear that up real quick. So today we're going to talk about the perpetrator or the killer of Roxanne Dahl, who of course is Richard Clark, and his life and his trial. And then we're going to go over his psychology and theories about what made him the way he was. So Richard Matthew Clark was born on August 18th, 1968, youngest of three. His mom was named Kathleen Feller. She was pregnant, not with Richard, but she was pregnant when she was 15. She married a guy named George Clark Jr. And her parents were not happy about this situation, meaning her being 15, pregnant, they also didn't like this George Clark, so sadly, as a result, they didn't really associate with the grandkids. Kathleen was pretty much, I think you could call, an alcoholic, and she continued drinking throughout her pregnancy. And later on, we're going to talk about what effect that likely had on her son, Richard. I think we know better nowadays that you can't do that. You can't drink when you're pregnant. I would think that they should have known that in 1968. You would kind of think that that would be like common sense. But 
I can't honestly say because I wasn't around them. So besides Richard, there was his sister Leslie and George II. Now, interestingly, and I know this is a little bit confusing, Richard's father was actually a dude named Gordon Nicholson. The other two, Leslie and George II, were the biological children of George Clark Jr. Richard's biological father was this Gordon guy. So his parents, are Kathleen and George Clark Jr., were divorced when Richard was a year and a half. They were often babysat by Carol, their aunt, who we've heard of last week. And Carol stayed with the family when Richard was born to help take care of him. Kathleen was never sober or rarely sober, and she rarely didn't have a boyfriend or husband. She met a dude named Norman Hastings and got pregnant. She was also very fertile, which is sad because of her alcoholism. And she had a daughter named Jeanette. Then she was briefly with a guy with three kids. I don't know his name. And then, unfortunately, she married a guy named Bob Smith, who was a known alcoholic. And she had more kids with him. Bob Smith turned out to be a horrible, cruel, violent stepfather. And when you hear about what this dude did to the kids, it's really no wonder that one of them turned out like he did. And the quotes I have here are from his Richard's brother, George. And they were taken from the book that I mentioned last week called Broken Doll. George said, quote, he beat us. He beat us with a belt, a fireplace poker, electrical cords, and his fists, end quote. For some reason, he liked Jeanette, so he didn't beat her or his own daughter, Crystal. But out of all the kids, he liked to beat Richard the most. And George said that the kids had to watch each other get beat. Strangely, Richard never screamed or cried. He would grit his teeth, and I think like he didn't want to give his stepfather, Bob, the satisfaction of crying or seeming upset when he got beat, which, which kind of makes sense. That's a coping mechanism. The other two would cry and scream, but Richard wouldn't until later, until Bob was out of the way. Aunt Carol is quoted as saying, I took him home with me for the weekend. He had bruises up and down his back and his legs from being beat with a belt. He cried and couldn't sleep for two days. I wrote his mother a letter. I told Kathleen that if I ever saw anything like that again, I would report Bob to the authorities, end quote. So, as a result... Carol wasn't allowed to visit the kids for three years. Kathleen then broke her neck. I don't know how. I don't know what she was doing that she did this, but she was never able to work again. Bob did seasonal berry picking, which doesn't sound very lucrative, sold marijuana, and poached deer. Other family members felt bad for these kids because they knew what a shitty stepfather they had and they would take them food and clothes. One time, Bob found out that Aunt Carol had given Richard some money, so he beat him because of it. The kids were kept home from school often because 
Obviously, the parents didn't want teachers to see all the bruises on them and call authorities. And according to George, Bob was always either drunk or high. George said that the kids had to sleep in a woodshed. And one night, Richard and Jeanette ate all of these campfire girl cookies. I guess that would be like Girl Scout cookies. Dozens of them, which I don't even know how you could eat that many cookies. But anyway, they did. So Jeanette didn't get in trouble for it. But what Bob did to punish Richard for eating all the cookies, he bought a big cigar and he made Richard eat it while the rest of the family ate roast beef. Can you imagine making a kid eat a cigar? Cigars are so gross in the first place. That is so horrible. He could have actually died from nicotine poisoning. That's not something that you should be doing. So when Richard was 14, his mother died in a auto accident. Supposedly, she had been drunk at the time. This happened in September of 1982. Um, according to Aunt Carol, she had been, quote, full of drugs and alcohol. At this time, Bob Smith was in Alaska. I don't know why, like for some kind of work, I'm kind of assuming. And when he got back home, all the kids had gone their separate ways because, of course, nobody wants to stay with him. Richard went with his Aunt Carol. And we saw that at the time that he killed Roxanne, he was still staying with Aunt Carol. Carol was quoted as saying, he refused to openly grieve. He wouldn't talk about her death. He kept everything inside. I couldn't even get him to cry, end quote. One night, he was crying and she was like comforting him. And he said, I just want to die. And Carol told him that she couldn't be his mother because she had to be her own son's mother. And this course just upset him even more. And Richard attempted suicide three times within a year by cutting his wrists. Then he moved in with, for a time, with his mother's ex-husband, George, and his wife, Tony. And you may remember hearing about Tony last week. She was the one who had a conversation with him when he called from jail. So as a teenager, he got into the proverbial bad crowd who liked to drink and use drugs. He couldn't bond with any of his relatives. And he only went as far as about seventh or eighth grade before he quit school. By this time, his main concern in life was getting drunk. And this is kind of easy to understand why. I think that he was self-medicating to cope with the grief of losing his mother. And let's face it, his life was pretty shitty. When he was a teenager, he got into petty crimes like car theft and burglary. Well, burglary is not really that petty, but compared to murder, it is. But I, th I think you get my point. And when he was 20, he would commit the crime that would send him to jail. This is the one that I mentioned in last week's episode. So what exactly happened with this? He was living in Everett with his Aunt Carol, and this occurred on May 28th of 1988. Like I said, he was 20. And on the street he lived on with his Aunt Carol, there was a little four-year-old girl. 
I'm not going to use her real name. I'm going to call her Trixie. I think that's a cute name. Trixie lived with her mom, Gina, also not her real name. And Trixie was the youngest of Gina's four kids. So one night, it's the end of May. It's a nice spring night. All the kids are outside playing, and it's about nine o'clock. So she calls the kids to come into the house and go to bed. And they all come in, but Trixie. So she's like, where's your sister? She sent the rest of the kids around the neighborhood to look for her, thinking she's somewhere busy playing and lost track of time. Well, they couldn't find her anywhere. But across the alley from Trixie's house lived Carol Clark and her nephew, Richard. Now, Richard knew Trixie. He let her play with his puppy and gave her gifts. He mainly stayed in the garage of his aunt's house, and this is going to be important. So the kids go over, and they ask Richard if he's seen their sister, and he said no. So this next part is a little bit odd to me. Supposedly, Gina just had a bad feeling, or like a mother's intuition maybe, and she made the kids go back to Richard's house and ask again. And I'm thinking, if she had that strong of a mother's intuition or a feeling, why wouldn't she go herself? But anyway, she sent one of Trixie's sisters back. And again, Richard says, no, I haven't seen Trixie. But her sister heard Trixie sobbing from inside the garage. So, of course, she runs home and, and tells her mom, you know, I heard Trixie inside the Clark's garage. So Gina is quoted as saying, when my daughter told me that he had her in there, I went running over, yelling at him to open up and let her out. So she's pounding on the door and Richard's inside now and he's locked himself in his garage. And he said, quote, I don't have her. I'm trying to sleep. Go away and quit bothering me, end quote. And if he had any kind of sense, I mean, fortunately for Trixie's family, he's a moron. If he had any kind of sense, he would have come out and made a show of trying to be, pretend to be concerned and saying, no, I haven't seen her. But instead, it's nine o'clock at night. He's like, go away. I'm trying to sleep, which I think was calling even more attention to himself. And the Trixie's mom starts banging on the door. She's like, I know she's in there. I know you have her in there. Let her out. Open the door. And then he says stupidly that he can't find the light switch, or the key to open the door. And in the meantime, she's carrying on and pounding on the door. And neighbors who had already been alerted to the fact that they couldn't find Trixie are now kind of milling about. And Trixie's mom's like, let me in. I swear to God, if you've hurt my daughter, you're going to jail. So finally, Richard opens the door. Gina runs in and sees Trixie crying. She's standing there. She has socks binding her wrists and her pants were pulled down. And she said that Richard was trying to pull up her pants with one hand and trying to get the sock off of her wrist with the other hand. So she grabs and take note of that, write that down or something, that he had her hands bound with socks. Because in case you haven't figured out, that's what he did with Roxanne. She grabs Trixie and hurries her out of the garage so Richard turned and ran away. I don't know where he thought he was going to go, but he ran to the end of the alley and two dudes in the neighborhood who were searching for Trixie grabbed him and held on to him, fortunately. So the police had already been called. And when they came, Richard was standing there being held on either side of him by a neighborhood dude. 
and Trixie's mom was beating on him with her fists, and they just stood there and let her. So Officer Snyder was the responding officer, and in his report, he said, quote, I was dispatched to the report of a sexual assault. When I got back in the area, I heard a lot of people yelling and screaming, separated them, and began to talk to each individual to sort out what had occurred. Trixie said she had been outside playing and that Mr. Clark had come up and talked to her. And then she looked at me and said, he put a sock in my mouth. And I asked her if she had talked to Mr. Clark, and she said, yes, he gives me things. She showed me a small kind of statuette of a dog that had been given to her. She looked at me and said, he touched me. And I asked her, well, how did he touch you? And she would just turn away, look at the TV, and not say anything. So I didn't press the matter. At that point, I decided to arrest Mr. Clark. End quote. Remember, Trixie was four at this time, and she said that he tied her up with socks and tried to put his hand down her pants. It also came out later that she was playing outside, and he actually picked her up and carried her off into his garage. And her statement says, quote, it was dark in there. He put a sock in my mouth and a sock around my wrist and tied it in back, and a sock over my eyes and another one on my arms. He put the wrist one on first. When Richard put a sock over my mouth, I cried. I was crying and screaming. No one else was in there with me. I knew my sister came over to Richard's house because I could hear her, end quote. Since Trixie had not technically been violated, thank God her sister and mother got, got there just in time. He was not charged with any sex offenses in this is very important. He was charged with unlawful imprisonment, and that in and of itself is not a sex crime. It's actually a pretty generic name for a crime. It could be just about anything. So in other words, you can't tell by looking at somebody's record, you can't see unlawful imprisonment and know that it's a sex offense. And this poor girl, Trixie, I'm not going to get a whole lot into her life, but she was first molested at, at age two by her own dad. And not surprisingly, she got into some trouble as a teenager. She was put into foster care. She had emotional problems, problems in, in school. In 1997, she was subpoenaed by the prosecutor in the case of Roxanne. So when she got the subpoena, she flipped out, and rightfully so. She was furious. She's like, fuck these people. I'm not testifying. I'm not going to court. I don't ever want to talk about this again. I'm not having any of it. She really went off the deep end after this happened. She threatened to kill herself. She ran away. Police found her. They put her in a hospital for a while. She had a psychiatric evaluation. She was given some medicine and returned to her foster home. So her psychiatrist wrote to the DA and said, look, if you have her testify, this would devastate her. She's already a wreck. Like, leave her alone. Well, Trixie solved the problem herself. She just walked out of the house one day and never came back until after Richard had been convicted and imprisoned. So I hope that she's okay today. She had a really horrible life, and it, it sounds like she had some PTSD from being molested by her dad, and then the incident with her neighbor. So this is really important that we discuss this case because it has so many parallels with what happened 
with Roxanne later. The grooming, meaning with the dog, do you want to pet my dog? You know, here's a, a gift, the socks, the binding with the socks. And later on, when we do psychology, I'll go over that more in detail. But back to the trial, or shall I say, to the trial. So the trial started, the, and this is again, this is for the murder of Roxanne, at the end of February of 1999. And the prosecution was not allowed to mention the incident with Trixie. So the jurors did not know anything about this prior conviction. I won't bore you with all the details of what happened at the trial. I'll just hit a couple highlights. The most damning evidence, to nobody's surprise, was the forensic evidence. The scientists testified that they found Roxanne's DNA on Richard's sleeping bag and socks that were in the van. And also his DNA was on one of these socks. They found his DNA from an anal swab that they took of her. And although that may sound horrific, well, I mean, it's still horrific, but and excuse this disgustingness, but the scientist said it didn't necessarily mean that she was sodomized. Depending on how she was positioned, the DNA could have dripped down from somewhere else without being too graphic, if you can understand what I'm talking about. Some of the people who testified were Nelia, Elza, Tony Clark, Carol. Carol was crying so much that they actually had to have a recess in order for her to get herself together. And then Carol got into an argument with one of the attorneys over some inconsistencies in her original statement versus what she was trying to say on the stand. And when she was asked about the purpose of, remember when I told you that a bunch of them went to see Elza, that's Richard's half-brother, to bully him into making up this story about the poached deer being the cause of the blood in the van. Well, she was insisting, no, that wasn't the point of the trip. The point of this trip was to repay some money to Richard's grandfather, who happened to live with Elza. So then Elza gets on the stand, and he says, bullshit, no, the purpose was to come bully me. You don't have to be Perry Mason to figure out that there's not much of a defense here. Pretty much the only defense that they had or what they used was they said that DNA testing was new and they tried to, I guess, maybe question the reliability of it. And the defense attorney kept trying to get Gail to say that she definitely saw Roxanne in bed when she checked on the kids when, after she'd come home and the house was all smoky, remember? And Everybody, in retrospect, thinks that Gail saw some dolls and thought it was Roxanne. Also, they tried to put up an alibi defense, claiming that Richard was at so many different places, meaning different bars, that night that he didn't have time to commit the crime. So they had a few people get on the stand. They had a bartender from one of the many bars they had been in that night. And that the bartender was trying to say, well, I think Richard was here at this time, meaning the time that they know now that Roxanne was killed. And she was trying to say that she was sure of this because something on TV and somebody was doing something else and some other factor. So she knows that he was there at that time. 
And the prosecution pretty much shot that theory by a simple question. Were you drinking that night? And she was like, um, well, uh, er, and so much for that. So then they had an alternate theory that the prosecution didn't have the evidence to prove that this crime was premeditated. So in other words, what their defense was, was pretty much like, he didn't do it. He, he totally innocent. He did not do this horrible thing. He did not go into Roxanne's house, kidnap her, rape her, and kill her. But if he did, if by chance he happened to, he didn't plan to, it just happened. You with me? Okay, good. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. But he didn't give anybody much of anything to work with. The trial lasted three weeks, and to nobody's surprise, the jury found Richard guilty of aggravated first-degree murder, and it was called aggravated because it had aggravating circumstances. That would be there was a kidnapping involved and a rape involved. So it's not just plain old murder, it's extra horrible murder, which it was. Now for the sentencing hearing, there were a couple things that went on here that would come back to haunt the prosecution. They had Richard shackled during the sentencing hearing. He had on chains and his hands were restrained. And that doesn't sound like such a big a deal, but you'll see later that it will be brought up again. The incident with Trixie was mentioned, and the jury learned that Richard had had a 1988 conviction for unlawful imprisonment. Detective Diane Berglund, who had been involved in that, testified about the details of what had happened that in, in that crime. The little neighbor girl, he either picked her up and took her into his garage, or he lured her into the garage, restrained her with socks, and was caught just before he was going to violate her in some way. And Aunt Carol and Richard's brother George both spoke in the sentencing phase on behalf of Richard. And one of the things the defense attorney said that I think sums up pretty much the whole thing is a very good summation of this crime. He said, quote, this is a stupid crime. This is an opportunistic crime, end quote. And that pretty much defines it. Yes, it was stupid and it was opportunistic. So Gail gave a victim impact statement. She said, we all feel a hole in our lives. And she said that she didn't let her, the other kids, leave their yard for a while because she was afraid that they were going to get kidnapped too. And I think, from what I understand, that that's kind of common in parents who have lost a child, that they cling real tightly to the other kids if they have any other kids. So remember I told you what an asshole he is, Richard, and like just when you think he's done the stupidest or the worst possible thing, he goes and tops himself. Well, listen to what he did for his, I think you could call this a grand finale or an encore performance. The judge goes, Mr. Clark, is there anything you would like to say before I pass sentence? So Richard goes, and this is the first time he'd actually said anything in court. He goes, quote, yes, I do. I have sympathy for the seven-year-old girl, what happened to her. But for the Ifrig family, they are the murderers. And then everybody in the courtroom lets out this loud collective gasp, like, oh, my God, what did, what did he say? Did he just say, what, he, what is he talking about? So Tim, 
abruptly gets up and walks out of the courtroom, and he would say later, quote, I had to leave. I had a pocket knife on me, and right then I wanted to, well, I had violent feelings toward him. I think the only thing that stopped me was that I didn't want my family to go through the pain of another trial, end quote. So here he is, Richard, till the very last, not taking responsibility for his behavior and actually blaming her family. I'm going to address this again later on, but if you haven't figured out why he's calling them the murderers, he was insinuating that, well, if they had kept closer watch over her, then I wouldn't have been able to crawl in through her bedroom window and snatch her out and take her. And just to give you an idea of how disordered his thinking was. So the judge sentenced him to death. And as you may guess, that's not where the story ends. At an appeal hearing on June 7th of 2001, the defendant's conviction was upheld, but the death sentence was reversed based on these factors. Well, actually, the defense introduced a number of different reasons that they thought the penalty should be overturned. And these included the legality of the search warrant, the seizure of his van, change of venue, the effect of publicity on jurors, his being shackled during the sentencing phase. I told you that was going to come up again. But only one of the things that the defense brought up was found to be, I guess you could say, the winner. The Washington Supreme Court found that the death penalty violated Article 1, Section 14 of the state constitution in that when they had the officer from Trixie's case come and testify and tell the details about what had happened during that crime, that that was unduly prejudicial. In other words, if they would have just introduced his record and said he has a conviction for unlawful imprisonment, that would have been fine. But because they went into detail, they actually brought one of the officers there, and she went into detail for the jury that it was a four-year-old neighbor, he was going to assault her, blah, blah, blah. Then the appellate court was like, okay, that's bullshit right there. We're going to reverse the death sentence. So when it, what ended up happening was Richard struck up a deal with the prosecution, and they said if he made a statement in court in which he totally took responsibility for everything that he had done, because up to this point he hadn't been, as you can tell, he was still blaming it on her parents. If he did that, then they would drop seeking the death penalty and settle for life in prison. So in March of 2006, they had a hearing at which Richard, who was now 37, made a statement that said he alone was to blame for Roxanne's murder. He said, quote, no other person is responsible in any way, shape, or form for Roxanne's murder. No one had anything else to do with these crimes. No one could have prevented me from doing what I did. No one failed to protect Roxanne, end quote. The whole family was there. The kids who, the oldest was now 23, and she had at least one child of her own. Christina was there. She was 16. And Nick, he would have, not sure how old he was. He was older than Christina. 
but the parents said that, especially the girls, because they had been in the same room as Roxanne when she was taken, had lived with this guilt of what if we could have done something, if we could have woken up, which had to be, I'm sure, a terrible thing to live with. So in his statement, Richard gave this story that he opened the window, the bedroom window, and he lured her, Roxanne, out of bed. He said, come to my van and play with my puppy, which he did really have a puppy there. Everybody has mentioned seeing the puppy. So, you know, he really was there. He said once she was in the van, they drove to North Everett where he raped and killed her. And he killed her, of course, to keep from telling about this assault. Now, I'm having a problem with this. Of course, nobody was there. Nobody knows except Roxanne, who's unfortunately no longer with us, and Richard, who I have a hard time believing. But imagine that you're seven and you're in bed. And we know that before this happened, Roxanne had told her mother that, I don't think, I'm paraphrasing, I don't think she used this word, but she said Richard gave her the creeps or made her uncomfortable. There was something about him that she didn't like. So you're seven, you're in your bed sleeping. All of a sudden the window opens and it's midnight. And here's this dude who gives you the creeps. And he's like, do you want to come out through the window at midnight to my van and play with my dog? Um, I'm just having an extremely hard time accepting his version of events. And like I said, of course, we'll never know. But I'm real curious as to what everybody else thinks. Do you think that it really happened that way? Or do you think that he maybe just carried her out while she was sleeping? But the only problem, see, I saw a picture of the house. And the window that we're talking about, for one thing, it's not very wide. There's not a whole lot of room to get in and out of. And it's kind of far off the ground. I'll see if I can find a picture of it and put it on my Instagram. But I kept staring at the picture of the house and I'm thinking, I can't see him getting through the window because we're not talking about a small dude and then carrying her out of it. It just, I'm having a hard time with the whole thing. So I really want to know what you think about this. And at the hearing, the DAs gave Roxanne's family the I Remember when she was found, she had on an ID bracelet. Well, they had kept this bracelet all this time because it was evidence. So they finally gave it back to them. And Gail gave it to Christina. As far as where all these people are now, Gail and Tim got divorced, but they're still friendly, which is good. Tim and his mom, Neelia, both stopped drinking, which is also good. Gail still lives in the same house from which Roxanne was taken. And I hope that they're all doing okay. And Richard Clark, of course, is in the Coyote Ridge Correctional Center in Connell, Washington, which is the largest prison in the state. And funnily, another name he uses in jail is Jim Miller. If you remember, that would be his drunken half-brother that was with him, but also passed out most of the night that he took Roxanne. And he's now 54 years old. He's ready to talk about psychology. Here's my little disclaimer. Everybody knows I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, and I'm not qualified to diagnose anybody. I'm just going to speculate on what could be going on 
with our fender here and his psychological situation. So remember, if you listened last week, I made up the TCU 10, the 10 factors that I thought if somebody exhibited in their childhood or teenage years, that would lead them to become violent or may lead them to become violent. So let's go over those 10 and see how many Old Richard here checks off. The first one is cruelty to animals or people. I don't know a whole lot about him, about his life or childhood, but I don't really have any evidence that he was involved in either. Number two is bullying or being bullied. Again, I have no indication that he was either of those. Number three, head injury. As far as I know, he never sustained any serious head injuries or concussions. Number four is substance abuse. And yeah, that's a really big one. I think it's pretty obvious that he was heavily involved in that as an adult and that he started using substances to self-medicate himself. I would say it appears like in his early teens. And if you remember, one of his acquaintances characterized him as always drunk and said that he had used pretty much every substance known to man. Number five is a major one with him, and that's physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. We know he suffered serious physical abuse from his stepfather as a kid. Number six, stealing, lying, dishonesty. Um, I believe some of his earlier convictions before he uh, was involved with Trixie involved stealing theft of some kind. So that would be a check there. Number seven is thrill-seeking. I really don't have any indication that he was into anything like that. Eight, destruction or vandalism. Again, not really that I'm aware of. Number nine, developmental disorders. And yeah, that's a big one. I'm going to talk about that in a couple minutes. Ten, early interest in sex. When he committed the sexual offense against Trixie, he was 20, which is pretty young. So again, I don't know his really details about his background, but it's likely bit just based on that, that he had thought about perpetrating crimes of a sexual nature fairly young. So Burl Bearer, who wrote the book that I used for the majority of this research, believes that Richard suffers from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I don't know if you recall me saying that when his mother, Kathleen, was pregnant with him, she was pretty much drunk throughout the whole pregnancy. And we know, of course, that if you do that, your child usually doesn't come out unscathed. And if we look at some of the the symptoms and signs of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, I think we'll see a lot of them were present in Richard. The symptoms of the disorder, which, as its name implies, is on a spectrum, meaning the person can have just a little bit of problems or they can have a whole lot of problems so severe that they have trouble functioning. So the symptoms of this disorder are mental health problems. A lot of the kids with it or the people with it have ADHD. 
most adults that have it are depressed or threaten or attempt suicide. And we know that Richard did attempt suicide three times in one year. So that's definitely there. A lot of them drop out of school. They have trouble paying attention. They don't do their homework. They have trouble getting along with people in school. And we know that Richard only went as far as about seventh or eighth grade. They have a high probability of sexually inappropriate behavior, including child molestation. And interestingly, 65% of adult males with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder exhibit sexual behavior that's problematic, like exposure, voyeurism, incest, etc. And since Richard kidnapped a little girl for sexual purposes at age 20 and then committed a sexually motivated murder, I'd say he definitely fits in that category. People with a disorder are likely to have problems with the law, all kinds of crimes going from shoplifting, property damage, to assault, which again, check. And of the adults with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, 53% of the males have substance abuse problems, and that was definitely Richard. They have problems keeping and getting employment, and Throughout my research, I didn't really see any mention of Richard having a job. The only thing I saw was a brief reference to the fact that he had some kind of landscaping job. So I don't think that he was a real go-getter in um, the employment situation. These people are also known to have poor social skills poor impulse control, trouble with memory, coordination, and tension, hyperactivity or ADHD, low IQ and learning disorder. Again, I'm not sure exactly if Richard had any of these, but it just seems from what I've read about him and the research I've done and based on his lifestyle that he didn't seem very bright. He didn't se- didn't seem to be interested in battering himself or educating himself or getting and keeping employment. He just kind of seemed to be living from one party to the next. So another thing that Burl Bearer mentioned, and I totally agree with this, is that Richard Clark was not a pedophile, but a situational child molester. And I think I've mentioned this Some other case, and I I can't remember what it was. One other scumbag that we covered was like this, but I, I can't remember who it was. Anyway, let me explain the difference to you. A pedophile is somebody who has a sexual preference, and the key word here is preference, for children. A child, in this case, is defined as somebody, boy or girl, who has not yet reached puberty, who doesn't have secondary sex characteristics yet. A hebophile is defined as somebody who has a sexual interest in people between puberty and the age of consent. So like maybe between, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, whatever the age of consent happens to be. A situational molester 
does not actually have a preference for children, but they will and they do molest them or assault them for various other reasons. And I'll describe more in detail what they are, and I think you'll see that Richard fits this description pretty well. Situational offenders are generally socially inadequate, inhibited, introverted, low self-esteem. They often have drug and alcohol problems. They generally lack adequate coping skills, and they tend to lack judgment or good coping mechanisms. They may also victimize the elderly, sick, or disabled. In other words, people that are helpless or who can't fight back. Now, the FBI broke down adult situational offenders into four types, and I'll go over the four, and then we'll try to pick out which one we think Richard is. The first one is called repressed, and this person is struggling with something in their life, like maybe a job loss, an illness, a divorce, some kind of trigger, emotional trigger that causes them stress or depression. So instead of handling it in a healthy manner, they may lash out and victimize somebody. The second kind is called morally indiscriminate. And you might be able to guess just by the name of it, what it is. It's just somebody that just really does not give a fuck to use the vernacular. They could sexually assault kids, adults, elderly. They don't really care. As long as it's there, it's all about control for them. There's also a type called sexually indiscriminate. This person is, again, I'm going to be a little bit crude, perpetually horny. If it's there, you know, if it's around, they're not picky. They don't care. This person tends to be involved with sex workers, um, bestiality. Again, anything that they can have sex with, they do. The last type is called inadequate. This person is, I think, one word easily sums it up, and that's loser. They're a social outcast. They basically just don't know how to act around people. They're incapable of forming consensual adult relationships on their own or relationships with peers. So they feel the need to become involved with children or people that can't say no to them. You know who this reminds me a lot of? I'm not putting him in this category. I'm just saying it reminds me a lot of Wahim Kroll. Do you remember him? I think we did him back in February. He was the little German dude, and he grew up um, having sex with farm animals. And he, because he was so disgusting and such an asshole, nobody wanted to have anything to do with him. So what he did was he would rape and kill, or actually in his case it was kill and then rape, several different females, ranging from little children to, I think there was like a 50-some-year-old woman. So from what we know about Richard, and again, I'm just making a guess here, I don't know, I'm not a professional, he seems to fit either the repressed type 
or the inadequate type. And I'll tell you why I pick those two. The repressed type, they're struggling with something in them that they don't have the tools to deal with in a normal way. So when they violate somebody, they're letting out their feelings in, in obviously a negative and illegal way. And I was led to say this because if you recall his Aunt Carol talking about how upset he was when his mother died, but he didn't grieve. He just held in all of his emotions. And also when he was being beat by his stepfather, all of the other kids would scream and cry except for him. He just kept everything inside. So that leads me to think that maybe if things get to him, like, without knowing more about his life, I don't know exactly what kind of stressors he would have had. But I think I can go out on a limb and say that he did not deal with stress well or healthily or have healthy coping mechanisms. And the other type that I think he fits is inadequate. This one kind of goes without saying. This is the person who can't form relationships with peers. He just, to me, from, from the sense I got of him, out of everything I read and heard about him, it, it just seems like he was kind of like a hanger-on, if you will. Like, he was always there, but... He was more of like the person who invited himself to a gathering as opposed to that people generally, genuinely, I, I guess, treasured his friendship, so to speak, or really cared about him or that he had any close friends. It just seems to me that he was that type of character, like the hanger on. Now, interestingly, I didn't know this until I did some research. We've seen in both cases with Trixie and Roxanne that Richard groomed them. He had the dog, which, to be honest with you, I would not be surprised if he went out and got a dog for the purpose of grooming children. Because who can resist a puppy? I can't. And I'm sure most kids can't. Hey, do you want to play with my puppy? Oh, well, sure. With both of them, he said, do you want to play with my dog? And I don't think it was the same dog because in each of the instances, it was a puppy. And these instances happened about five years in between. So it couldn't have been, unless it's, it's like a perpetual puppy, it couldn't have been the same dog. And he also gave them stuffed animals. I really thought that only pedophiles groom kids. But from what I learned, situational molesters can and do groom also. And situational offenders can be family members, teachers, babysitters, etc. And in the, first, in the case of Trixie, he was a neighbor. In the case of Roxy, he was a family friend. And I came across a quote in my research that pretty much sums this up. So I want to read it to you because it really gets everything down clearly and, and simply. Predators are opportunity makers. Situational offenders are opportunity takers. 
In other words, if predators actively go out seeking victims, situational offenders, or more like kind of sit back and wait for somebody to come into their radar or however you want to look at it. So could any of this be prevented? I, I do have to say one thing and go off on a little tangent. I did say earlier that there was very little out there on this case as far as podcasts, YouTube, etc. I found one YouTube video and it wasn't really about the case itself. It was more about a dude who visits crime scenes and he was visiting Roxanne's grave and put some flowers there. And while he was doing it, he told the story of what happened, of, you know, a brief version of the crime. And people, you know how on a YouTube video you can make comments. Well, people in the comments were making me so mad. I was, there was like smoke coming out of my ears. Not all of them, but many of them were blaming Gail and Tim. They were saying, oh, this poor girl, she would never have been taken from her house if her parents weren't meth-using, drug-addicted drunks. And her dad was passed out drunk, and the family friend comes in, and blah, 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 and she never had a chance, and she's terrible parents, and what kind of... And I'm like, oh, my God. First of all, Gail was in no way, shape, or form a drug user. She didn't even drink. Second of all, even if Tim was drunk, he said that he had worked hard all day and he came home and he made his steak or he put his steak in the pan. He sat down on the couch and he fell asleep. That can happen to anybody. Do you know how many people just sit on the couch and fall asleep? My ex-boyfriend, who by the way, doesn't drink. I used to tease him all the time. We'd be watching a movie. Five minutes into the movie, I'd turn around, he's sitting there sleeping. That happens to everybody. How about blaming the asshole who crawls into your window at midnight while your children are sleeping and steals your little girl from her bed? That is the person to blame. That's the only person to blame. I don't want to hear bullshit about the parents this, the parents that. Victim blaming is really obnoxious. Just don't do it. I understand why people do it. They're trying to protect themselves like, oh, well, that woman was raped, but look at the way she was dressed. It's no wonder she was raped, blah, blah, blah. Well, people are trying to protect themselves by saying, I don't dress like that. Therefore, I'm safe. That wouldn't happen to me. I know it's a defense mechanism. It's a protection mechanism. But still, keep it to yourself because it's rude. So that's my little speech. This episode is dedicated to precious little Roxy. I hope she's in heaven singing to her baby dolls. And next week, get your passports ready because we're going on a field trip someplace that we've never been before. And it's another one that is, I think, safe to say, not very well known. Okay? Don't victim blame. Okay? I'll see you in the next week. Class dismissed.